All right. Well, this is the Q&A portion of our time, and uh, we just want to continue in the same spirit of learning from the message and then worship from being led in song as we dialogue about some of these things. I love uh, Elijah's prayer there, because that really is what this is, a conversation about things that matter. And so, got some good questions that came in today. We're going to try to uh, talk through a few of them. One of them, Mark, was... Um, what if somebody says to me, your religion makes you happy, my religion makes me happy, why not just leave well enough alone? It's a good question, and I think it's a very Western question, because if happiness were the end goal, then I could buy the premise. And so if you ask the question, I'm not, I'm not certainly insulting your word choice, but I think it's very American to say that we want our kids to grow up to be happy and rather than to grow up to be whole. And so what Christianity offers is a peace with God and a peace with man, and not just a self-peace that says, I've won more than I've lost, I have more than I gave away, and so life is good. And so it's not about being happy, it's how do you deal with the sin condition of your soul? There's not a person in this room who's thoughtful, who is not self-aware that they've, bro they've broken themselves. They've shattered themselves by the choices they've made, amen? amen? And your preacher stands up here every Sunday, and I try to be honest with you. I'm a broken vessel that I hope contains the Spirit of God, and if it leaks, may it splash on somebody who needs it. And so it's not about being happy. It's not about being content. It's about being whole. That word shalom in the Hebrew means complete, right with God, right with man, and right with self. Only Jesus Christ can really offer you that. That's good. That's true, yeah. One of the questions, Michael, that I want to throw your way is, uh, and it's a fair question again. These questions are really, really good. I like you guys. Uh, we get some silly questions like, you know, that are poking fun at us, but for the most part, the questions are legit. Because you were born in America, isn't it easier to be a Christian, a Buddhist in Japan, so on and so forth? How do you deal with the question that says, isn't Christianity really just an American thing that we've made it into? Yeah, I, I love that that one came up because I, I would imagine many of us have probably heard this. It's a common refrain, and I got a couple of responses to it. One is, um, like just dealing with the, the, the logic of the question is, is, or the assumption, is it true or not? And I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind and, get, and also get good at in these conversations is to point out like flaws in thinking, but in a gentle, respectful way. Uh, for instance, this one just, it's just not true that you know, people are only Christians because they grew up here or only Hindus because they grew up there or whatever. And some of the ways to point that out are um, simply showing a couple things. First of all, there are Christians who, who grew up in places where Christianity is not popular. That is really all we need to prove that the fact that I live in America is not the only reason I'm a Christian. And on the other hand, I grew up with plenty of people in the church who aren't following Jesus today. So just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean you're going to be in the church when you're an adult. And, uh, and the other way around, just because you grew up outside of it doesn't mean you can't make a decision and join. So it's just kind of patently false. And then the second thing I, I do in, in terms of is this, is this assumption true or not? You know, how do I argue with the point of this question? Um, is just looking at history. Christianity is rooted in the Middle East. It began in the Middle East and then expanded throughout that region of the world. So historically, it's in many ways sim simply untrue to, to, to make that point. It's not a valid argument against the faith. I will say, on the other hand, um, whenever we hear that, we need to do a little bit of a, of a double take, kind of a personal check, and say, am I just kind of going with the motions? Am I just going with what I've heard? Or have I made my faith my faith. And if you're, if you're in here and you're thinking, I don't really know, then, then do it. Go for it. Make the faith your faith. Don't just come because it's a thing you do, but instead, you know, investigate the claims of Jesus, make a decision for yourself, 
and then it just won't be true that the only reason why you're holding on to the faith is because it was handed over to you. I think Chad addressed it last week too when he talked about suffering. And I know a number of people were out traveling because of the holiday weekend. But if you think about suffering is, you'll find out if you're a social Christian versus a faithful Christian by what you do when God says no. When you don't get what you want, is God still God? And that's one of the acid tests for all of us to find out if we're cultural Christians by where we grew up and whether we went to camp or not. And I think the great awakening for the American church is when our country isn't the country anymore. Will, will we be following Jesus or will we be hoping our government rescues us? And it's a challenge that I think many in our lifetime are going are gonna to have to face. We've got time for one more. Um, this is a well-worded one, so I want to quote it word for word. Somebody texted in, with so much attack against Christians, do we fight back or humbly take it but continue our work to spread the gospel? What other group of people celebrate the death vehicle of their founder? The church. Why do we celebrate the cross? Because Jesus didn't fight back. Remember what he told Peter in that garden? I got 10,000 angels waiting to come down here and take names. But he chose not to do it. Do we fight back? The testimony of the church is often sung by the martyrs. So to become John Wayne and go out and whip people in the name of Jesus seems antithetical to Scripture. That's why Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You'll get more attention for the goodness of the gospel by letting God be your defense and God be your strong arm than for us to do it for ourselves. Now, what I'm suggesting we do is not easy. It's going to take an abundance of faith. It's not something you're going to just decide the moment. Yeah, you have to build. Faith is a muscle in my mind. And if it's not used, it atrophies. And so because of that, do, do we just go along and take a beating? In the name of Jesus, if you can project the gospel, sometimes you'll do it in meekness more than in power and might. And uh, so it's a great question because we're taught differently. We're taught fight and defend. And I'll defend the gospel. I'll defend it to my death, which is a, an act of meekness rather than an act of strength, is to just be submissive to that. So I hope we answered the core of that particular question because it's a brilliant question. Are we just supposed to just, you know, the gospel is not going to be accepted in our lifetime, church. We have to understand that and prepare for it. I used to get patted on the back for being a Christian kid in high school. That's no longer the case. Students are not applauded for having faith. They're ridiculed. They're questioned and they're challenged. And we have to raise this generation, ours, and the following generations to understand the gospel is worth dying for. And you die by surrendering to it. And so it's going to be a big challenge. I, I don't want to end this morning on that bummer note. Here's the, I've read the end of the book. If you haven't got that far, we win because he wins. Okay? So it, it may be a rough go, but God will win. Every promise God has ever made will come true, and we're betting our life on that. And that same spirit of learning coming out of the message and, and worship coming out of that song and, and prayerfulness, we want to continue the dialogue and talk about uh, some of the issues that are coming up. You guys are sending in a bunch of great questions, and we want to try to tackle some of those uh, here in our time right now. And then as we've been doing, we'll follow up some more with others in a video that we'll put out this week. Mark, one of the questions that came in is, um, kind of what if somebody says to me, well, my, your religion, you know, my religion helps me be fulfilled and helps me become more moral. Yours does the same for you. Let's just leave well enough alone. Yeah, it's, it's really a good question, and I just want to accent Michael's point. We love the response we're getting from you all. The ones about why I'm bald, I'll pray for you, but for the most of them, they're, they're <laughs> pretty theological. So what do we do if 
someone's religious pursuits make them a moral creature and ours makes us a moral creature, then we've misunderstood what the gospel is. The gospel is not about being good. It's about being whole. There's a Hebrew word that we use the word peace. There's a more intricate, beautiful, ornate word called shalom. And what it means is wholeness. So it's not just about me being a good citizen, well-received. It's not me being a better version of Mark. It's me being whole with God, whole with you, and whole within myself. Being moralistic does not deal with your sin problem. It's just a grieving and covering up of your sin problem. Where does the healing come from for the sin that you've committed? And I'm not talking punishment. I'm talking about your own awareness of what it means to be made right with God, made right with yourself, and made right with others. That's what the word righteousness means, that you're in right relationship. And so, please, and whoever asked the question, this, I'm not taking offense by this. I'm glad you asked it. It gave me a chance to preach a second sermon. If you believe Christianity is to make you a better version of yourself, we've not represented the gospel well to you. It's about living out your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and being right with Him. And when you're right with God, we'll be right with one another, and I'll be right with me. And so, yes, religious pursuits can make you a better version of yourself, but that won't save you. So, Michael, one of the questions, and we've, some of you have asked a similar thread of questions, and we've tried to truncate them in, so if I don't read your question exactly, it's because we're trying to bring three or four together. Uh, how do you tell a friend about Jesus who belongs to another denomination and or another world religion? Yeah, there's the, the, the great, great set of questions coming in on that, and some on denominations, some on religions, and we're going to talk more about the denomination piece uh, later on in the video this week, and there is really a distinction between those who claim to follow Jesus in a specific way and those who claim to follow someone else, and so uh, dealing with the specifically the other religions one, the two principles I try to keep in mind are I want to know enough about my own faith, and I want to know enough about their faith in order to try to draw a bridge between the two. And we'll be talking about this actually some in the next month or so. In our next series, we're going to look at different persons in the book of Acts. And a lot of times then you have people going uh, with the faith to other beliefs and different things. And so we'll see that in the scriptures. But the basic idea is, yeah, I want to know what I believe so that I can answer their questions well. Not to win a fight, but to clarify what we think God has revealed is true. And then I really want to, you know, learn something about what they're saying they believe and, and how they understand their faith and what their faith teaches. Because sometimes um, part of what you can do for people is to help them see maybe some holes in their own story, some holes in their own worldview or belief system or, or, or religion. And one of the specific questions that came in um, was uh, about actually Satanism. I have a friend who's a self-professed Satanist. Why do you presume her religion is wrong and morally inferior when the Bible has several verses encouraging rape, while the Satanist equivalent of the Ten Commandments, there's one that specifically forbids it. Right there, I want to know enough about my own faith to actually point out that, no, there's about ten verses or so in the Old Testament that some people misinterpret to be a sanctioning of rape, read in context of the time and with the rest of the scriptures, that's not what they're actually teaching. So there's a false assumption about what our Bible teaches and our faith believes. And then also, I want to know something about Satanism. The particular form that they're talking about with these different lists of principles and commandments I want to be able to point out, like, yeah, remember that whole, you know, you talk about in this form of, this is the form of Satanism that started in the 60s, and they, no joke, talk about the gold rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's like, yeah, well, you stole that, <laughs> you know, from Jesus. And then um, be a, to be able to basically dialogue with them and point out that this, first of all, shouldn't be called Satanism because it's an atheistic philosophy. Everything good about it, and there's some good teachings, believe it or not, 
is, is taken from Christianity, and the rest of it is basically just a 1960s American culture baptized into a faith. And so to be able to know some of these things and to dialogue with a person will enable you to answer their questions, talk to their concerns in a way that doesn't make them sound so bad that they're obviously wrong, but rather you can say, there's some things about your belief system that I really respect, but here are some problems that I see with it. In the end, what does it do about this problem that we are not right with God, ourselves, and one another? Does it actually solve that, or is it just lay a list of rules over us telling us how to try to figure this thing out? So that's just one example, but again, the general principle, know your faith, know theirs, so that you can draw bridges in conversation between the two. And then mark another Again, set of questions that, that came up. Let me try to articulate. Uh, let me read one of them. That, that This was one question, but it pretty well represented what a lot of people were saying. What is the best way to communicate with friends in other Christian denominations that feel that their rules and laws of faith are the only real way to God? Yeah, That's a really good question. I, I was raised in that environment, not at the church I attended, but friends I went to uh, church with, and they were taught that you had to worship a certain way or you had to attend a certain evening or, you know, I always thought if you didn't go to Wednesday, I always thought Jesus was going to come back on Wednesday night and find the real believers. That's how I was raised. So if that scares some of you, repent. But <laughs> you have to be really careful. The Bible does expect things from us, okay? Now, we're living in a world that says if you're saved by grace, it doesn't matter what you do. No, no, no. Holiness is what you're saved to. The pursuit of holiness is only good. So there are certain aspects of living out your life. I, I wrote a little note when Michael read me the question. If what you're doing is a response to Jesus rather than a replacement of him, knock yourself out. If you believe that your baptism contractually obligates God to save you, you're wrong. We're, we baptize as an acceptance of what Jesus has already given us. We receive it. So we're talking about whether you're responding to Jesus or replacing him. And and Michael pointed out, the book of Galatians is written to people who want to know, what do I need to add to Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Our obedience is not making Jesus a better version of Jesus. Our obedience is responding to the holiness available to us in Christ and through the Spirit. So, it sounded like I didn't answer the question. Now let me answer the question. If a group wants to worship a certain way, and that draws them closer to Jesus, who are we to judge? In the same way, I won't let someone judge my heart in my worship to Jesus. You may not like the way I do it. You may not like the reasons behind what I do it, but that's between me and the Lord. Remember back to the Roman series when we talk about meat sacrificed to idols. We live in a world that wants to one-up each other. That's what today's message was about. Let's not get involved in that. We leave each person to attest to their faith to Jesus Christ directly. So if people do things that you don't care about, love them anyway. And if people don't like the way you do it, love them anyway. That's the heartbeat of today. So how do we deal with people who are in different pieces of Christianity, different groups of Christians who judge or feel theirs is the right way? Show them the same grace and mercy you've been shown. You answer directly to God for why you do what you do. But as Michael said earlier, I'm convicted by this, you better know what the Word of God says before you simply say, I'm going to just go do my Jesus my way, and that should be good enough. No, no, the Bible calls us to holiness, pursue holiness. And there are some steps that you need to take to do that. So trust the word, honor God, and respond to Jesus. And I think you can let all the criticism that hits you just fall away. Uh, be submissive to the word of God. Start there. If someone convicts you that your behavior is not within the word of God, there's a biblical word for it. Repent. And if someone judges you in an area of opinion, love them anyway. 
you'll both get over it. I want to remind you that we're going to talk through a few of those now, but um, there are lots that we can't touch, and we'll try to do many of those, uh, and we'll re be, re be releasing videos later on in the week that you can find on through the app and on the website and different things to try to talk through more of these. One that came in, Mark, that um, I loved seeing, and I'm excited to hear what you say because it's not only going to be a few years before I'm in this situation, and the question was, what are some things we can say to our 10-year-old children who are trying to and want to talk to their friends about these things? What pointers can we give them? Yeah, it's really a, a good question because when, I, when you talk to a 10-year-old, most adults can understand it. And I don't mean, that's not funny, it's true. And word pictures matter. Um, I think fundamentally I would like my sons to know that the reason it's important to talk to your friends about their wholeness is because every one of us, every self-actualized, self-aware person knows they've broken themselves. Would you agree? And know that they've done things they wish they'd never done and there's a hole in their heart. And how do you overcome that? So I'm going to use, I use word pictures with both of my boys to try to explain certain things. One of the word pictures would simply be, and allow me to extrapolate this a second, I used to be a lifeguard, and one of the things they teach you in Red Cross is it's better for one person to drown than two. If someone is swimming and they go under and you swim up to them to save them, they may use you as their life buoy. So they taught us pure and simple. There's a spiritual application to it too. You can't save someone who's trying to save themselves. And so what we talk about when we talk about religion, and you're talking about this pursuit, is everyone who is pursuing God is trying to save themselves. Christianity is so unique in that when we stop trying to save ourselves, the work of Jesus Christ can happen. Does that make sense? So I'd explain to a child that what you need to do is pray that God will create this desperation in the heart of your friend to know that their efforts aren't going to be enough. And I think what I love about a baptism uh, is when you see an adult with tears in their eyes because they're finally relieved from having to be their own Savior. And they just get washed and trust that that death, burial, and resurrection is going to happen. So I explain it to a child in very simple terms, and thusly their parents as well, that this is all about self-saving acts. Religion mostly is. And when we trust the work of Christ, the redemption in Christ, then we have something more beautiful to perceive, which is, I let Jesus save me. Now I owe him my life. That's how I'd attempt it. Yeah, another one that came in that really is, um, just kind of represents the, the big um, burden of the message as a whole is, is, here's how it's worded. I understand Christianity is unique, but why is it the one true religion? Is that where faith comes in? Okay, the answer can be done in a sentence, but since I'm a preacher, that's not going to work. Um, it's the resurrection. No other world religion founder is still alive. I can take you to every one of their tombs and graves, uh, and they're, they're full. There's no empty tomb. Now, that may not seem enough in an intellectual age to, to write off. That you, you need to understand, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the most important thing you can know is that the tomb is empty, the resurrected Jesus. And so that's the difference. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have a world religion that's going to take you nowhere. The difference between Christianity and every other religious pursuit is uh, our founder's tomb is empty. He's still alive. And when a man comes back from the dead, he better have our attention. All right, Michael. One of the really good questions that came in for a smart guy, and so I passed to you, is... How do we honestly balance the wrath of God with the grace of God? 
Yeah, I love this question because it gives us an opportunity to remember one of the most important things for us to remember about who God is and, and what he is. And that is that God's various attributes do not compete with one another. And they never cancel mm. each other out. Now, God is different from us in this. Now, for us, you know, like wrath or anger and patience, they compete with one another because we're at war within ourselves. We're partially broken, even as we become more like Jesus. God is not in any sort of internal war. He is completely at peace with himself. And therefore, his wrath, his grace, his patience, his mercy, his jealousy, his justice, all of these different ways of describing what we're looking at when we look at him are all in harmony with one another. And one of the best ways for me to understand this specific piece of wrath and grace, because they seem so different, is to just think about parenting. It's only one of many relationships we could use in this way. But for me, I have two kids, Carson and Claire. Carson's boy, Claire's girl. Carson likes to hit things, including his sister. And so, now I love both my kids all the time. But when Carson is in the process of swinging at my daughter, they're both experiencing my love for each of them and for both of them. That makes sense. She's experiencing it in that moment as defense. He's experiencing it in that moment as wrath. So in that sense, God is always gracious toward all who don't deserve, which is everybody. There's always a readiness on God's part. He's always reaching down and saying, if you just let me, I'll save you, I'll heal you, I'll put you back together. And he also, because of his love, as a manifestation of that same love that impels him towards grace, he is, he is facing those who are actively rejecting him, which always means actively destroying the things he loves. He is toward us in those times uh, with wrath. So I don't know if that makes perfect sense. Um, it really is, is also a way for understanding what the, what's going on in the cross. This is where his grace and his wrath come together because Jesus experienced the wrath so that we could experience the grace. Um, so a lot of different things that could be said in that regard, but the key thing to remember is that God's attributes don't compete, yeah. and therefore we're looking at his love from various directions. That's, that's the, the richest. I'm glad you said that because I hadn't thought of it in that simple of a term, but it's true. We try to say God's either gracious or he's wrathful. No. No, in his love, in his wrath, the wrath that we should receive, we have never received it fully, nor will we. So you can't have gra uh, grace and wrath in the same place. This is a free question. Why do we put pillows on things we're going to lay and sit on? Uh, that, we'll answer that another day. <laughs> Every time I try that. to get into bed, that's a theological question for me. So anyway, okay. I remember when I got married, and I realized, like, for me, as like a single guy, a pillow had one function. I lay it down whenever I lay my head. But like when I got married, it's, there's a bunch of pillows on the bed. I'm like, what is, I don't only need one. Well, those are for yeah. decoration. What? Anyway. We'll, we'll bring so a, yeah, I feel you. Yeah. We'll bring a wife up here next yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> we are not experts on such matters. Uh, one more question. And I, this came, man, I love this question. Because it represents a person who is, um, as, as really all of these do, trying to take the faith seriously, but really wrestling with what, you know, how to make sense of these things. The question was, there's a lot at stake here. If what we believe is true, then we're talking about pe people reject it. There is destruction at the end of that path. So lots at stake here for the people we care about, these friends we're talking about. So the question is, how do I balance urgency in light of what's at stake with grace a moment interaction, since that's the message that I'm trying to bring. Yeah, I think if you look at the three-year ministry of Jesus, to the best of our time frame, somewhere around three years, maybe a little bit more, when you look at that relationship he had, notice the patience he had to deliver the truth and allow it to settle. He didn't try to close the deal in every conversation. I'm more fearful, and applaud this question, I'm more fearful for those of us that are not urgent. Because you may be living in a universalist heart. 
You may be saying, no matter what I read in the scripture, I think God's just going to be kind to everybody, so it's not a big deal. That's the most dangerous assumption you can make. I would much rather have you be more urgent than not urgent at all. And so urgency with patience is far greater than no urgency at all. That's not patience. That's disbelief. And so when we talk about the urgency of this is that nothing sells like a satisfied customer. I want to go all the way back to week one when Michael talked about those who believe the Bible's irrelevant. The way you demonstrate that is not by a factual argument. It's by a demonstration of the power of the Word of God in your personal life. The urgency all of us need to have is to witness the love and grace of God to everyone we meet. God will work in those moments to compel them toward that. Love is an attractive thing. If you're married in this room right now, you know one of the reasons you were married is that person dug you to the degree you dug them. And you were like, wow, I really like her and she actually likes me. I want to spend more time with her. When Christians begin to demonstrate the love and grace of Christ in their own life, it dra- if we draw people to Jesus, if we ask people to imitate us as we imitate Christ, then all of a sudden you're going to have the compelling part of your your life that people are going to be drawn to so yes pray seek look for conversations with folks to offer them this this is not something that's optional this is something extremely important and when they realize you're not trying to be right but you're loving them well then i believe it's up to god and the holy spirit at that moment to bring conviction and to draw them closer to christ if we lift christ up he will draw all men to himself yeah, thank you, Mark, and thank you guys for asking such good questions as we continue to dialogue on these important things. And uh, yeah, let's all go speak the truth in love. We'll see you next week.